So, uh, Sergeant of Arms reported to me that they have been unable to locate any state senators. Last Thursday, the president of the Oregon State Senate looked exhausted. He just called a session to order when he realized all of the Republicans had simply refused to show up. We are two senators short of being able to do any business on the floor of the Oregon State Senate. He announced he'd be sending state police after the missing senators, that he'd be fining them 500 bucks for every day they missed. And then he gave one of the strangest speeches I have ever heard an elected official deliver. I beg and beseech my fellow legislators to come to the floor. I need you. The legislature needs you. The people of Oregon need you. He's shaking his head like a rejected suitor at this point. It looks like he could cry. If you're mad and you're angry, upset, take it out on me. Say things about me. Come at me. Don't do this to people of Oregon. Don't do this to this branch. You're too good. You've been chosen. I'm begging you to come back. I don't want to send the state police. Are you? I, I, it's the word. I don't. I don't. I have no other choice. I have no other choice. While this speech was going on, Senate Republicans were on their way out of state, and their tone was giddy. Okay, so sending the threat out, like, oh, we're going to have a special session where I'm going to send the state police to arrest you. Well, I'm quotable, so here's the quote. This is what I told the superintendent. Send bachelors and come heavily armed. I'm not going to be a political prisoner in the state of Oregon. It's just that simple. I think that particular comment was really what put a lit a torch to this whole situation. Jason Wilson reports for The Guardian. He moved here from Australia, but he's lived in Oregon for the last five years. He says this Republican glee has animated so much of what happened next. That's what really, I think, uh, got the Democrats hopping mad. And that's what attracted the interest of, of the national media, which, which also amped everything up significantly. What drove the Republicans out of town was this climate bill, a cap-and-trade agreement that would have severely restricted greenhouse gas emissions. Republicans didn't want to give it a vote because they knew they'd lose. A lot of it is Republicans signaling to their constituents and importantly to their donors that they are not going to compromise on any effort to address climate change. This is the hill that they're prepared to die on, I guess, is the the best way of putting it. But it's not just the climate change bill at stake. With the legislative session nearly over, there are more than 100 other bills in jeopardy. Bills that would fund Medicaid and establish paid family leave. In Oregon, the clock is ticking, and the legislature is waiting. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. 
Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As of the time we put this show together, the missing Republicans were still missing. And that exhaustion you heard in the voice of Oregon Senate president, it's only gotten more profound as the days have passed. Eventually, he caved to the pressure. We do not have a quorum. So we cannot proceed to our agenda. Earlier this week, he got up on the floor of the Senate and announced that cap and trade bill, it's called HB 20. It was off. What I'm about to say, I say of my own free will. No one has told me to say this. No one has, there is no strategy, what I'm about to say. It's just Peter. House Bill 2020 does not have the votes on the Senate floor. That will not change. I asked Jason, what happened here? He was kind of saying, well, even with us Democrats, we don't actually have solid numbers for this bill. So he appeared to be saying that there there were three Democrats who weren't going to vote for it anyway. So why hold up everything else for this bill? And it felt like he was a hostage or something. He was like, I'm saying this of my own free will. It was very strange. It was odd. He was kind of throwing his hands up and saying, you know, we've got other business here that we need to attend to, that we want to attend to. And... And, you know, it was, but it was interpreted as a sort of surrender to this Republican brinksmanship. Obviously, at one level, it was. And I saw this picture from when this happened. These protesters who were in the gallery when this happened, people in favor of this cap-and-trade legislation, and they all just turned their back on him, right? Yeah. And, and you know, like, the Democrats are absolutely burning bridges here with the climate movement, which in a liberal state like Oregon, you know, that's it's a significant movement. This is this is a whole bunch of NGOs and individuals who have really invested a lot in the idea of this this bill passing. I guess the big question now is whether the Republicans come back, because there have been some people saying, well, this could be a Democratic ploy to get us back. And then surprise, we're voting on cap and trade. Right. I mean, that would be a level of tactical acumen that the Democrats haven't displayed so far. But, <laughs> but you know, I mean, that discussion really displaces the more important one, I think, which is what the heck are these guys doing, <laughs> absconding to Idaho in order to not do their jobs as senators? I mean, I, I feel like that conversation has been slightly lost in the drama of will they come back or won't they? What would happen if the Republicans stayed away through the end of the session? Well, the Senate would not be able to pass anything. The Senate would not be able to vote on anything. Um, and then what? That's it. You know, everything gets put put off until next year or, hmm. or, or abandoned altogether. Does that mean police don't get paid? Does that mean teachers don't get a raise? What does that mean? Well, um... I haven't been through all 100 bills that are that are pending, but yeah, I mean, it will mean that state employees don't get paid or that state employees aren't able to do their jobs for other reasons. It will mean that basic functions of the state government will, will not be able to, to go on. And for them to just sort of completely abandon 
that whole process would would be unprecedented as I understand it in Oregon history, like for them to just stay away for the rest of the session mm-hmm. and to refuse to uh, allow the Democrats to kind of vote on anything. You know, I mean, failed state is a big word, but, but failed legislature probably is appropriate. In Oregon, Democrats have control over both the assembly and the governor's mansion. But not showing up gave the Republicans newfound power. Even after the Dems declared that their climate change bill was dead, the GOP kept the Senate waiting, wondering if taking cap and trade off the table would lure the missing senators back to work. It didn't. Let's talk about this bill in particular, because it's a cap and trade measure. It's been hard to pass these in the Pacific Northwest, but just in general, California has a bill that does something like what this bill does. Can you explain a little bit how it would work? Yeah, so it it caps the amount of carbon emissions that can be released in the state. So it, it caps the amount of um, fossil fuels that can, in, in particular that, that can be used. Um, and over time, that cap is reduced. Now, Yeah, I liked the kind of musical chairs aspect of it, where it regulates all the industries and then eventually, you know, fewer and fewer of the offsets are available. So it, it forces people to emit less. Right. All the while, people are able to trade, you know, the permits uh, that they receive for carbon emissions. So really, it's a way of creating a kind of market-based incentive for people to, or for, for firms, for businesses, to reduce their carbon emissions. And my impression is that part of what made this bill so important was that it regulates everyone. It wasn't just one industry, it was a lot of them. And so it would hit a lot of different people. And Oregon has logging interests and other businesses that would be impacted. And people were also worried about gas prices. Right. Most people think about Oregon and they probably think about Portland and maybe some mountains. But, you know, really outside the urban areas where, you know, there's a lot of employment in, in tech, Nike's here in Portland, um, you know, there, there are other sort of high tech or, or design based in- industries here. But really outside Portland and Salem and, and Eugene, in rural areas, Oregon really still is a kind of extractive resource-based economy. So yeah, there's a lot of logging. Um, there is there is some mining, but but logging is 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 a big deal. Um, mm. And those rural areas over the last thirty or forty years have have gone from being quite prosperous as a result of logging to you know being not so prosperous at all. And that's kind of visible when you visit a lot of rural Oregon towns. I read about rural Oregonians protesting this bill outside of the legislature. I'm not sure how many of them there were, but I did hear, you know, loggers were driving their trucks around the Capitol. And it did make me wonder, has Oregon been neglecting those rural areas and sort of giving more support to the urban areas where a lot more people are making a lot more money? Well, yeah, Oregon's a blue state. But that's that's only the case in its urban areas. The state's political divide really maps on pretty much exactly to that urban-rural divide. And, and rural areas elect Republicans, but not enough to really influence the direction of the state or, or to form a kind of governing majority. The politicians who absconded this week exclusively, I think, represent rural areas. Um, and in those areas, 
yes, there's there's a lot of rural poverty in Oregon. Uh, a lot of the decline of those towns has not been addressed. Um, Did this bill do anything to address this? Well, <laughs> no, not directly. Um, you know, I mean, look, there was a period where uh, land management changed and and rural towns in Oregon were kind of compensated by that for that by the federal government. But those that avenue of compensation has run out. And you've got a situation in places like Josephine County and far southern Oregon where they had to close their public libraries a couple of years ago. Um, there were cases where people couldn't get police out to their properties at night, you know, when a crime was taking place because because the police weren't able to to staff their dispatch. So it's a situation where there is a, a really significant economic divide as well between rural and, and urban areas in Oregon. Feels like the Democrats need to fix that at the same time that they're fixing the climate change stuff. Right. But their incentives are more to, you know, their own constituents. So it's 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 a bit difficult. But yeah, I mean, I think there are absolutely criticisms that can be made of of Democrats in, in Oregon and in the Pacific Northwest that they have allowed that situation to deteriorate far more than they should have. It's interesting because I was looking at some of the language around this this protest and what the Republicans were saying, and it felt like it shared something with the protests we'd seen earlier this year in France, the Yellow Vest protests, where rural French people had come out in far greater numbers and they had protested climate change legislation and they'd said some of the same things that were being said here about, you know, we're going to pay the costs of all this. We need to drive our cars. We can't take a train somewhere to do our jobs. And Ooh. it struck me that progressives around the world need to think about these issues as they push their agendas forward. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. Um not only progressives, but as, uh, you know, whatever your politics, as societies, we need to think about what a just transition to a less carbon intensive economy would look like. Um, what are we going to do for the people whose whose jobs are wiped out, who's, who are working in industries that are wiped out, whose communities are no longer kind of viable? You know, what, what are we saying to these people now? Are we saying you, you all need to move to Portland? How are people going to do that? How are they going to afford to do that? What skills do they have to offer an urban economy? I think also, like, these communities can't hold their young people either. And, and that's a real difficulty when you're trying to imagine a future for your community. If, if, if young people aren't sticking around, if there aren't jobs for them, if they can't live their lives in the same communities that their parents grew up in or their grandparents, what are you saying to those folks? Of course, this Republican walkout isn't solving any of those problems either. And it's worth noting Democrats have tried this tactic, too. Oregon's governor has called these Republican senators anti-democratic, but she herself fled the state to avoid negotiating when she was a senator. Um, yes. In 2001, the Democrats uh, did some quorum busting of their own, uh, and that was over a redistricting issue. And yeah, I mean, it happens in other legislatures as, as well. Quorum busting you know, it's not something we've seen a lot of lately. And I think that's why this became such a big story. And also yeah, them fleeing the state, uh, going on the lamb. Um, I mean, what raises the stakes on this one is, you know, is this what the future looks like across the country 
as people try to address climate change. Um, if Republicans in Oregon are prepared to blow up the legislature, I mean, what hope of there is there of passing even kind of moderate climate change measures in, in say, Texas um, or, or in other states where, you know, resource economies are also important? Well, it's not I, just know, about the topic, although climate change is, of course, one of the most important topics right now for us mm. to address. It's about the fact that all across the country, local legislatures are being dominated by single parties. I read this statistic that this is the first time in more than a century that so many state legislatures have been dominated by either a Democrat or a Republican party. It's creating these super majorities. And instead of making the minority quieter, it's making them louder. They're taking their toys and leaving. They're doing all kinds of things to try to just have some little bit of control. Right. So it's an artifact of the the polarization that just uh, affects every aspect of our lives in this country. You know, and, and one thing maybe that the nation has found out over the last week or so is how deeply polarized Oregon is as well. And, and how um, that crunchy liberal image that Oregon has kind of belies some very, very deep and substantial divides that are so deep, in fact, that that Republicans are prepared to sort of suspend, you know, the procedures that have been set in place for passing laws uh, rather than kind of negotiate. You, as someone who lives in Oregon, what are the lessons here for the rest of us? Oh, um, I, I would hope that the lesson is that this is not a precedent that should be followed. <laughs> I would hope that um, people are alarmed by seeing that this has apparently worked, that by detonating the process, the Republicans have gotten their way in, in a way that really, I think, is an affront to democracy. I think that other minorities will look at this and say, hey, you know, look what they did. They were facing down a supermajority and they just took their bat and ball and went home, you know, and, and refused to negotiate, refused to, refused to engage. We could do that too. I'm terribly afraid that that lesson will be learned and, and I'm terribly afraid that we'll see this happen again and again in future legislative sessions. Jason Wilson, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you. Jason Wilson is a columnist at The Guardian and a journalist. You can find him on Twitter at Jason underscore A underscore W. And that's the show. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Ethan Brooks. In case you didn't know, What Next is not the only daily podcast Slate puts out there. Every evening, you can also look for The Gist with Mike Pesca. Today, the show is all about baseball, including this little bit of trivia. What do baseball's seventh inning stretch and Handel's Messiah have in common? If you want the answer, you're going to have to click over to his feed right now. We'll be back here tomorrow. Talk to you then. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. 
With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.